All right, let's uh, get started here. We're in 1 Corinthians. Uh, does everybody have notes? Does everybody get their notes and so forth? We've got a lot of notes today. We're on a complex section that's head coverings. Head coverings for women. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about this over the years. I've spent a lot of time studying it myself. Because we have some churches, uh, um, a church uh, that that I'm familiar with, Dr. Mark Minnick down in South Carolina, his church, they wear head coverings. And uh, I've listened to his arguments about it. I should say I find them uh, not compelling at all, and I'll show you why. <laughs> I think this is actually not that hard, really. But we'll see how that goes here. But... Uh, First, we have our quiz from last week. First, some food is morally better than others. Not morally better. Now, maybe better, maybe more healthier for you. Yeah, but it's not a food is not a moral issue. It's not uh, in that sense. It can be better for you or worse for you, depending on the circumstance, uh, depending on your physical condition and so forth. But it's not a moral issue. Um, now, for the Jews, it was in the Old Testament. If you ate this ham sandwich, you were disobeying God. So that was a moral issue. It's not a moral issue in the New Testament. Paul indicates that Christians should avoid going to the homes of unbelievers. False. No, he says if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, then you can go. Uh, he's talking about the food offered to idols there and so forth. Three, the Lord's Supper is a fellowship among believers and with the Lord Jesus. True. It's a koinonia fellowship. Four, a believer has freedom to do whatever they like when it comes to non-essentials. False, there are some governing principles, right? To the glory of God. We, whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, we do to the glory of God. And we don't want to cause a, another person to stumble, to fall into sin. Jew, Gentile, a church of the living God. Paul says. All right. We're looking at propriety and public worship. So we're dealing with the problems communicated by official letter, chapter 7 through 16. The first was marriage and related problems, chapter 7. Then we had this very long section, 8, 9, and 10, about this food offered to idols and what, how Christians should respond to that. And now we're dealing with propriety in public worship. Paul has strongly prohibited the Corinthians from being involved in pagan worship. Now he takes up three items of abuse in the Corinthian church. First, in 11, 2 through 16, is the issue concerning women's head covering when praying and prophesying. Second, in 11, 17 through 34, is the problem of the abuse of the church at the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table. And third in chapters 12 through 14 is the abuse of speaking in tongues in the church. So today we take up the question of a woman's proper head covering. I say here, when people today read this passage and think of this covering, they often incorrectly associate it with the word veil, which is some sort of garment that sort of covers the face. Sometimes it's can kind of see through it sometimes you can't see through it it sort of covers the face 
a wedding veil or a darker veil or some kind. It's unfortunate uh, since this tends to call to mind the full veil of contemporary Muslim cultures where veils cover everything but the eyes or we think possibly the burqa which is worn in Afghanistan and covers the whole head. This type of veil was unknown in ancient times at least from the evidence in paintings and culture. From what we can learn from the New Testament era, the statues and artwork that have survived, the covering Paul has reference to was either the loose end of an outer garment or a separately fitting linen cloth worn over the top of the head, much like a modern-day scarf. So you can see it. You have a lot of examples of statues and paintings with uh, the head covering. Here's a head covering on a woman. We're not sure whether this is the betrothal or the wedding exactly. Could be either one of them, but this is uh, the woman here, the husband, and the head covering here. In Paul's day, the head covering was just that, a head covering only. The word uncovered in verses 5, the word uncovered in verse 5 that we'll get to, and the word cover in verse 6 and 7 clearly indicate an external covering. This covering cannot be the woman's hair. So, one of the views that's been around for ever since I've been a Christian is, well, this hair covering is her hair. Because Paul will talk about her. The covering is given to her, her hair is given to her as a covering. And so, People will say, well, what the covering we're talking about is the hair. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. cannot be true. Because these words speak of an external covering. Something is put on top of her head, and it's not her hair. The common practice in the Roman world was for married women to wear a head covering in public. The head covering made it clear to everyone that a woman was married. The thin scarf or head covering symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. It was one way in which a wife honored her husband. But a new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world, one who rebelled against the cultural milieu that allowed husbands but not wives to be sexually promiscuous. And we talked about this at Corinth that in the ancient world, men were allowed to be promiscuous. They could go to prostitutes. This was acceptable. Not women, not married women, though. That would be adultery. Uh, one way in which wives, such wives could flaunt their freedom was by removing their head covering. Some women in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, were discarding their head covering in the assembly. Paul considers the woman's action shameful, and for that reason he offers a theological reason for maintaining the custom of head coverings for Christian wives while praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship. To deliberately remove her head covering in such a setting would identify her with these other promiscuous women. It would also show she's not in submission to her husband, we'll get to We start off with a statement of praise. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the uh, traditions just as I pass them on to you. Having exhorted the Corinthians to imitate his imitation of Christ, Paul now commends the Corinthians for doing so with regard to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. 
However, these words of praise are surprising in light of what has gone on in the previous ten chapters. Yet we should remember that the that though the Corinthians had problems, they were not an apostate church. So sometimes when we think of the Corinthian church, we think of it in terms worse than it was. It was had some problems. But it's not a an apostate. It's a gospel church. And there, there is the gospel there. People are saved there. There are believers there. Even though they have a lot of problems, uh, serious problems. Uh, when I say an apostate church, I'm talking about churches like in our day that maybe have the name First Baptist Church of someplace, but they don't believe the Bible, they don't they don't hold to the Bible, they don't hold any doctrines, it's just you know, it's just social getting together. So that's an apostate. They turn from the faith. There are plenty of churches like that. Plenty of apostate churches. But this is not one. They are keeping certain unmentioned traditions. But there is a problem with certain wives at Corinth who were disregarding discarding, I should say, the traditional head covering. Paul starts with the principle of subordination, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, or the head of the wife is man, and the head of Christ is God. In spite of the fact that the Corinthians have kept some teachings or traditions, they have not kept them all. And so Paul begins in verse 3 with a but. But, he says, there are certain things you need to know. What he wants them to know takes the form of a theological statement or principle that will serve as the point of reference for the conclusion that immediately follows in verses 4 through 6. The theological statement or principle is this. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman or wife is man, and the head of Christ is God. This statement is in three parts, each using the word head metaphorically are figuratively to express a different relationship. Man, Christ, woman, man, Christ, woman, man, Christ, God. Greek does not have a separate word for woman and wife. Greek does not have a separate word for woman and wife. A single word, gune, is used for both. So, uh, here's the Greek word. So when we bring it into uh, English, this U usually becomes um, a Y. When you think of any words, <laughs> gynecology and all those kinds. Yeah. So the Greek word for woman means wife. And the Greek word for man means husband. At least one of the words for man, for, for, for a male, means husband. So there's no separate word. This creates problems like in John 4 when Jesus said, the woman at the well, you've had so many men, uh, you've had so many husbands, and none of them, and the one you have now is not your, what is he talking about? Sometimes it's hard to know. Jesus talking about husband, and she had, she had so many husbands, apparently, and the person you're living with now, you've got so many, and the person you're living with now is not your husband. It can be difficult sometimes to know how to translate whether we're talking about a husband or just a man. So I'm saying here, this is true for the man and husband. In this passage, it specifically refers to the wife in 3, 5, 6, 10, 13. Now the NIV is translated woman. It's hard to know what to do. Translators 
are concerned about what to do with this word. The ESV in these verses translates in 3, 5, 6, 10, 13, wife. I think it's wife. I think very clearly it's wife here, but some like to just keep it woman, and we'll talk about that. So that's why I put in brackets wife. And the head of the wife is the man or the husband and the head. This statement is setting forth the principle of subordination. The word head means authority over. Compare Paul's other use of head in Ephesians 1.22, 5.23, Colossians 1.18. Paul says in 122, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head. That's the same word we have here. The authority over everything for the church. The same word. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head, the authority over the wife, as Christ is the authority over the church, of which he is the Savior. So I am the authority over my wife, but I'm not the authority over Lisa Steppenbacher. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Only in one little sense, in the sense that I'm on the church staff here. Pastor Ken is not, her, her, her husband Jim is the authority over his wife, but Pastor Ken has some authority. He's the pastor of the church. So leaders, political leaders have authority over us. Police can have authority over us. There are people who can have authority over us. Our boss, when we work, we're working for somebody. They have authority over us, you know. But we're talking about, we're not saying that all men, all men do not have authority over all women. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's talking about main, mainly the husband-wife relationship in this sense. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, Christ. He's the authority over the body, the church, and so forth. So, um, Paul is saying that Christ is the authority over every man, man is the authority over the woman, and God is the authority over Christ. Since Paul appeals to the relationship between the two members of the Trinity, in this case the Father and the Son, it's clear that he does not view this relationship described in this verse as merely culture or the result of the fall. The principle of subordination is still valid today. So this is something to do in the Trinity we're talking about. So this uh, this relationship is not a result of the fall. So one of the things you'll see in the feminist movement is they will say that, yes, it's true that because of the fall, women were in submission uh, to their husbands, but now that they are saved in Christ, that's no longer true. Well, that's not true. Paul appeals to the principle here of the Trinity, which as an eternal relationship. Paul's second point is the second clause, the head of the woman or the wife is man. So there's his main point. The head, that's what he's trying to get at in this context here about the head covering. The head of the woman, the head of the wife is man. So why the other two clauses? Probably they're included to explain and clarify the second clause. In other words, the clause that might be controversial as well as misunderstood is sandwiched in between the other two. Christ becomes the model for the husband's headship over his wife since he is the head of every man. By being in submission to his father, Christ is also the model for Christ's wife's submission to her husband. The wife's submission to her husband involves no inferiority of her person 
or nature any more than Christ's submission to the Father suggests any inferiority. We understand, of course, that God has authority over Christ in a functional, not an ontological sense. So all the man-woman relationship. Now, we'll talk more about this later. But So, when we talk about the Trinity, theologians will talk about what they call the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. What does ontology mean? Ontology means being or essence. One's very being, one's best essence. As far as ontology is concerned, the Father and Son and Spirit are equal. The Son is not less than... Remember, Jesus said, my Father is greater than I am. Well, not really, not ontologically. The Son, the Spirit have the same attributes, they deserve the same praise, the same honor, they have the same power. But they function in an economic. Economics means function, how they function. They function in a hierarchical relationship. The Father is the one who sends the Son. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit. So they function in this uh, economic relationship, in this working relationship. That's how they work. So, uh, But they're <coughs> equal in honor, glory, being. Ontologically, they're equal. So the same with the man and the woman. Same with the husband and wife. So that helps us understand what he's getting at here. He's talking about a, a function, how they function. So, Pastor Ken is the greatest authority in this church. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's the smartest guy. He's pretty smart. <laughs> but there could be somebody here with a higher IQ, you know. That's true in the marriage, too. The wife may have a higher IQ, you know. And so maybe she should handle the finances, man, you know, because she might, she might be better at finances. Maybe she's got an accounting degree or something, you know, she might be better. But, so that, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about abilities and, and that kind of thing. We're talking about how this thing works out, how it functions. Remember, this verse is Paul's main point. The principle of subordination is the key to what Paul says. People get all caught up in the details and miss the main point, which is the subordination of the wife to the husband. The key, co uh, 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 the head covering must be maintained in Corinth in that culture because for a wife to refuse to wear it meant she was not in subordination to her husband. All right, conclusions about head coverings based upon wild subordination. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. In the first conclusion, Paul begins with the men. Even though the real issue at Corinth is with the women, Paul seems to be setting his argument up with the women in verse 5 and 6 by means of a hypothetical situation here in verse 4 with men. If a man were to have his head covered when praying or prophesying, he would shame, bring shame to his head, who, according to verse 3, is Christ. This is so because a head covering was what a woman wore in, a wife wore in Corinth to show her subordination to her husband. If a man wore a head covering, he would be shamefully depicting himself as a woman because according to custom, women wore a head covering. If a man were to wear a head covering, he would not be conforming to the role God intended for him as a man and thus would bring dishonor on himself and his head, his authority, Jesus Christ. Now the two verbs here, pray and prophesy, make it clear that we are dealing with the assembly at worship. 
You can pray in private, but you can't prophesy in private. Praying and prophesying together are something that's done in the assembly. The idea of prophesying refers to the gift of prophecy, which is the giving of authoritative (coughs) revelation from God. The consistent New Testament idea is that a prophecy is an actual message or oracle from God. So the word is not used in the New Testament to refer to the interpretation of an oracle by a skilled interpreter. Prophecy in Paul is nothing else than inspired speech. The gift of prophecy is not necessarily equated with teaching or governing. In prophecy, God puts the words into the mouth of the prophet who is basically simply a spokes, a mouthpiece for God. So, I should say, there are no prophets today. Now, there are people who claim to be. And sometimes, even in our circles, uh, preachers will say, I'm a prophet, or I'm, you know, I'm a prophet. No, there's no prophets today. The gift of prophecy is gone. There's nobody who's giving authoritative revelation from God. We have the scriptures. They are the final authoritative revelation. There is no new revelation. There are no prophets at all today. But there was in the New Testament church. There were people who had these spiritual gifts that we'll see. Prophecy is one of them, tongues and others. These were available before the New Testament was written. The church, early church needed direction and help. <clears throat> they had the Old Testament. They didn't have any New Testament. So there were prophets who would give words from God and so forth. Um, Verse uh, 5a, 11.5a. But every wife, every woman or wife, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. By way of contrast, Paul now addresses the wife with a sentence that is in perfect balance with verse 4. She brings shame on her head if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. Her head refers to her man-husband. This means that she disgraces her husband in terms of the husband-wife relationship by showing a disregard for God's order of subordination. She does this by dressing like a man, that is, not wearing a head covering. At Corinth, if a wife failed to wear a head covering and so dressed like a man, she brought shame on herself and her husband. This is because her behavior would be a symbol of her rebellion against the created order, the intended relationship between husband and wife. Thus, Paul teaches that women can pray and prophesy in public, but they must do so with the demeanor and attitude that supports male leadership, male headship, which in Corinth meant wearing a head covering. A head covering at Corinth communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment. Paul does not forbid women from participating in public worship, but he does insist that in their participation they should evidence a demeanor that is humble and submissive to male leadership. Remember 1 Timothy 2.12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So, should I say any more? Um, so women cannot prophesy in this church because nobody can prophesy in this church but women could pray women could pray you know we have women pray in small groups some have asked why don't we have women pray at other times and we could I say we I'm just 
talk to Pastor Kevin about that. <laughs> but the, the theory behind this is, I think, you know, as I understand the leadership, they're trying to, uh, they're, what, what they're trying to do is to communicate the need for male leadership in the church. They're trying to set an example of male leadership because that is a, that's a problem. Male leadership is a problem in the church, in the society. Proper male leadership, you know, not, you know, not the wrong kind, but the right kind. So they're trying to set an example by having men pray, and that's the reason for it. It's not that it would be unscriptural or it won't be done in the future. So if you get called on to pray, you know, be ready. So I'm just telling you, you know, here it is. Verse 5, B, it is the same as having her head shaved. That is, the woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman, wife, does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. I said previously that the wife's shame is not wearing a head covering is due to her appearing like a man. This is confirmed by Paul's explanation for in verses 5b and 6. A woman's favor to wear a head covering is analogous to her having her hair cut short or shaved. It is, as Paul says, the same as having her head shaved. Most wives in the culture of Paul's day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because she would look like a man. Paul's point about a woman's head covering being shaved seems to be that if a woman does not cover her head, which means she is bringing shame on her head, then let her go all the way and be shaved, that is, having hair like a man, like a man's. Now, there is, some have argued that prostitutes at Corinth shave their heads. And there may be some support for this in the documents. Documents, that, that's possible. Uh, normally, it was a sign of shame if, if a woman had her head hair cut or head shaved. Uh, according to the documents we have, a husband could cut the hair off of an adulterous wife and kick her out of the house. But one of the things he would do to point out her shame of adultery is cut her head or shave her head and kick her out of the house. Additional reasons for wives to wear head coverings and men to not. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of the man. Paul intends what follows in verses 7 through 10 to be an elaboration on verses 4 through 6 explaining why men should not, but wives should be covered while praying and prophesying. This elaboration seems designed to explain how the wives praying or prophesying uncovered bring shame on her head. The second part of verse 7, but the woman is the glory of the man, is elliptical. That is, something has been left out. Paul intends the reader to fill in the missing words from the man's side. I thought you just had surgery on your knees. Tuesday. Oh, okay. I was thinking I got confused on that. You know, that was a quick recovery. Boy, I said, man, that was really quick. You walked in here and I thought you, I said, I thought you said Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Okay. Tuesday, yeah. Uh, All right. Now, I thought we were in the day of miracles here. <laughs> Might as well prophesy to that. I know. It. Man, I'll tell you, I was saying that. Because I was going to ask your wife about how your surgery came off. She shakes. Don't. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
So the second part of verse 7, but the woman is the glory of the man, is elliptical. That is, something has been left out. Paul intends the reader to fill in the missing words for the man's side. On the one hand, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But on the other hand, the woman ought to cover her head, since she is the glory of the man. Paul is not denying in this verse that women are also created in God's image. He is referring to the creation account. Since he's referring to the creation account, he was obviously aware that Genesis teaches that both men and women are created in God's image. Remember Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In fact, Paul does not say that woman is not in the image of God. Paul's emphasis is on the word glory, which in this context means something like honor. Woman is the glory of man. Woman is to honor man, I'm arguing. This is confirmed, I'm going to prove that, by the fact that this is what glory means in verse 15. Notice verses 14 and 15 here. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? So in verse 15, Paul says that long hair is a woman's glory. Conversely, in verse 14, he says if a long man has long hair, it's a disgrace, it's a dishonor to him. It's clear that these two verses function as a contrast. It is glorious, it's an honor for a woman to have long hair, but it's dishonorable for a man. Thus, another way of translating the word glory in verse 15 would be with the word honor. If a man has long hair, it is dishonor, but for a woman, it is, glory, it is, the, it is honor or glory. So back in verse 7, we see that Paul is saying that a man is the image and glory of God, that is, he is to honor God, and thus he ought not to cover his head, but the woman is the glory of the man, that is, she is to honor the man, and she does so at Corinth by covering her head. Verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. These two verses are intended to further explain the sense of verse 7c. The woman is the glory of the man. In, verse, in other words, verses 8 and 9 give two reasons why woman is the glory of man, while glory of man, while woman is to honor him. First, in verse 8, Paul says, in verse 8, Paul says that woman is the glory of man because man did not come from woman, but woman from man. That is, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Paul's thinking here of Genesis. 221 through 23, you remember that passage, where woman is made out of man's rib. God caused him to sleep while he took one of the man's rib, he closed the place up. Lord made woman uh, from the rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man and so forth. Such an origin for woman, that is from man's rib, indicates she has a different role, a different function in the created order. Since woman came from man, she was meant to be his glory. That is, she should honor him. 
Paul's thought is that one should always honor and respect the source from which one came. And the woman honors man by wearing a head covering at Corinth, thereby showing that a man is the head that is the authority. Verse 9 explains that woman is man's glory since man was not created because of woman, but woman because of man. Paul again here alludes to Genesis 2. Woman was to accompany man. Remember Genesis 2.18. Not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So he formed out of the dust of the ground all the wild animals. He brought them to man. Whatever he, he, man gave him a name. So man gave names to all the livestock, the birds. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, uh, since uh, verse, uh, second verse 9 explains that woman is man's glory, since man was not created because of woman, because, but woman because of man. Once again, Paul alludes to Genesis 2. Woman was created to accompany man and in order to be a helper for him. So if a woman is created for man's sake, that is to help him in the task God gives him, then it follows that she should honor man. Verse 10, it is for this reason that a wife, a woman, ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. This verse is somewhat problematic because Paul does not say what we might expect him to say. That is, in light of the previous verse where he has said that women should honor Man, we would expect verse 10 to say, it is for this reason that a wife ought to wear a head covering. That's what I would expect to say. And if I was writing scripture, this is what I would say. But that's not what Paul says. But instead he says literally something like this. I'm just trying to translate word for word here. It's literally, or I guess you could say, a woman wife ought to have authority on or over her head. A woman ought to have authority or on or overhead, which the NIV interprets to mean a woman wife ought to have authority over her own head. Okay, if that's the correct translation, the idea given this translation is that a wife ought to control her head so as not to expose it to indignity. She ought to control it. If she uncovers her head, then everyone has control over it and she loses her dignity. Instead of shaming her head, she must control it by wearing a head covering according to custom. Now, I'm not sure that's the best translation. It's a difficult verse. Most other translations, and the NIV 84, the NIV 2011 switched to this one. They, they went to a kind of a neutral. Most translations do it like this. But it's best in light of the context to understand the word authority in a passive sense. That is, not her own authority, but as a sign, that was the NIV 84, or a symbol, uh, the... Christian Standard Bible, the old Holman, the ESV, New American Standard, as the sign or symbol of another's authority. So a woman ought to have a sign or a symbol of authority on her head. Most translations read, a woman wife ought to have a sign or symbol on her head. NIV 84, 2011, they put that in the margin. CSB, ESV, New American Standard, New King James. Basically, then, this verse is an argument in favor of women wearing head coverings. The reason for this points back to verses 8 and 9, which explains why a woman should have a head covering. Thus, here in verse 10, Paul states that for the reasons of verses 8 and 9, God's order in creation, women ought to have a sign or symbol of authority on her head, which is an external head covering. 
Also in this verse, Paul gives a new reason for the wearing of a covering by the women because of the angels. He says, uh, she ought to have authority, she ought to have a symbol on her head because of the angels. What Paul means by this is not clear. In other words, I don't know. <clears throat> However, some passages speak of angels as sort of guardians of God's created order. So here's the best, I think, explanation we can kind of come up with. That angels are guardians of God's created order. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So the elect angels are watching to keep the instructions without partiality. I'm charging before God and the elect angels. They're watching, Timothy. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of things that they that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Angels are watching, observing what God is doing in the plan of salvation. Also Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So his intent was that through the church, God's wisdom, God's great plan will be made known to the angels, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Thus, Paul may mean that since angels are guardians of God's created order, they would be upset at the disorder caused by uncovered women at Corinth. A caution concerning a wrong conclusion. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For a, as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In verses 3 through 10, Paul has presented his argument in favor of male headship and female submission, yet allowing for the participation of women in worship. However, it might be possible for the Corinthians to infer too much from this presentation, to draw a wrong conclusion. It's not Paul's intention here in this passage for them to think that women are inferior to men. So Paul quickly qualifies what he's just said. Nevertheless, even though I've talked about women being in submission to their husbands, nevertheless, he says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of the woman. Paul asserts there is a partnership between the sexes, and in the Lord, neither exists without the other. Men and women are interdependent. Together they make a unity in which each member is essential. So there's a pr profound interdependence between man and woman, husband and wife especially. Uh, between in, in male and female relations, there, there's a mutuality. And so neither can boast. Neither of the sexes can boast because they're interdependent. Paul states in verse 12 that woman originally sprang from man. Since that time, however, man has come into existence through woman. And all the men are happy about that. The entire universe owes its existence to God. The man and the woman are not independent beings. Instead, each finds usefulness and importance through a relationship with God that enhances their relationship with one another. So Paul sees no contradiction between the essential equality of the sexes, in essence, and yet at the same time, he <clears throat> affirms there are clear role distinctions between men and women, husband and wives, and so forth. 
an appeal to the Corinthian sense of propriety. With this final section, Paul now returns to the main argument of verses 4 through 9, women's head covering. But the appeal in this case is slightly different. Here, Paul appealed to the Corinthians' own judgment and sense of propriety based on the nature of things. Nature teaches that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, while if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Apparently, Paul intends this appeal to make two points. That nature itself has thus distinguished between the sexes and two, that a woman's long hair should teach them the propriety of being covered when they pray. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman, a wife, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? What does Paul mean by the word nature? Paul's use of the term elsewhere and the use of the term teach suggests he's referring to the natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong that God has implanted in us, especially with respect to sexuality. Nature refers to God's intention in the created order. This sense of what is appropriate or fitting has been implanted in human beings from the creation. In this sense, nature teaches us. In Romans 1, 26 through 27, Paul says that men, women and men involved in homosexual relationships have exchanged the natural function of sexuality for what is contrary to nature. Same exact word, nature. That's contrary to nature. That is, they have violated the God-given created order and natural instinct by engaging in sexual relations with others of the same sex. We can say then that nature teaches in this sense, in the sense that our natural instincts and perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular cultural situations. We can say then that nature teaches in the sense that our natural instincts and perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular cultural situations. Or to say it another way, nature teaches in that the natural inclination of men and women is to feel shame when they abandon the culturally established symbols of masculinity or femininity. Thus a male instinctively and naturally shrinks away from doing anything that his culture labels as feminine. So two females have a natural inclination to dress like women rather than men. Paul's point then is that how men and women wear their hair at Corinth is a significant indication of whether they are abiding by the created order that is acting like males or females. Of course, what is appropriately masculine or feminine in hairstyle may vary, and it does vary from culture to culture. But in Corinth, as was common in Greco-Roman world, in the Greco-Roman world, men were generally inclined to identify with short hair and women with long hair. Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. For the woman, on the other hand, the opposite prevails. What is dishonor for the man, long hair, is glory for the woman. Glory in this instance, as we have previously noted, since it's the opposite of honor, dishonor or disgrace in verse 14, must mean something like distinction or honor. 
Paul is arguing by analogy that since women have by nature by nature been given long hair as a sort of natural covering, then it's then in itself points, that in itself points to their need to be covered when praying and prophesying. Don't get confused by Paul's argument and think that this whole passage is about long hair as a covering. The vocabulary in verses 7 through 9, the term cover and uncover, used there absolutely and unequivocally speak of an external covering, not the hair. Paul is only using, Paul is only arguing by analogy here that the long hair of women in his day points to the need for a covering. Women should, in a sense, follow the lead of culture and appeal to the custom of the churches. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. Paul draws his whole argument together with a final appeal to what goes on in the apostolic circle. We have no other practice and the rest of the churches. The practice of certain Corinthian women who refuse to wear a head covering is what Paul refers to when he says, we have no such practice. Paul understands this instruction is binding for all churches in the New Testament world of his day. Does this passage suggest that women should wear return to wearing head coverings? No. We must distinguish between the fundamental principle that underlines a text and the application of that principle in a specific culture. The fundamental principle in this passage is that the sexes, although equal, are also different. God has ordained that husbands have the responsibility to lead, while wives have a complementary and supportive role. In the first century at Corinth, failure to wear a covering sent a signal to the congregation that a wife was rejecting the authority of her husband's leadership. Paul was concerned about head coverings only because of the message they sent to the people in that culture. Today, except in certain religious groups, if a woman fails to wear a head covering, no one thinks she's in rebellion. Lack of a head covering generally sends no message at all in our Western culture. Nevertheless, that does not mean that this text does not apply to our culture. The principle still stands that women should conduct themselves in church in a manner that makes it clear they submit to male leadership. Also, both men and women today should dress that they do not look like the opposite sex. Confusion of the sexes is contrary to the God-given sense that the sexes are distinct. For example, it would be wrong for a 20th century American male to wear a dress in public. It would violate his masculinity. Everything within a male would cry out against doing this because it would violate his appropriate set of sense of what it means to be a man. Obviously, what is appropriate male or female dress has varied over time and is not the same in different cultures. For example, men wear skirts in Scotland. They just don't call them skirts. They are kilts. Kilts are not considered female dress in Scotland. So what is appropriate male and female dress can vary somewhat from one culture to the other and from one time period to the other. The key is that God wants Christians to avoid any confusion of the sexes so they should dress in a way that distinguishes them from one another in their own culture. So the main idea in this passage is that at least some women at Corinth by not wearing a head covering, were sending a signal 
that they were not in submission to their husbands. So Paul insists that they wear the covering because of what it represents in the Corinthian culture. Women do not need to wear a head covering today because in most, Ameri- most of American culture, the fade or do so does not send a si- signal of rebellion against authority. Some may still wonder whether a head covering is just cultural and not mandated today. But we must recognize that the head covering is not the only command in the New Testament that is tied to the cultural milieu of the New Testament and thus not directly applicable today. The commands in the New Testament that are culturally relative, like head coverings, are basically physical actions that carry a symbolic meaning. And there are about six of these in the New Testament. The holy kiss, foot washing, head coverings for women, short hair for men, no jewelry or braided hair for women, and the lifting of hands in prayer. These are all physical items that carry a symbolic meaning. For example, the holy kiss was a physical expression that conveyed the idea of a welcoming greeting. If one insists that the head covering is a moral absolute, one must also argue for the holy kiss, for foot washing, for lifting hands in prayer as moral absolutes. The point is we must still honor the principle behind these culturally relative commands, like the holy kiss, that we do not carry out the actual physical action itself, which was tied to a particular culture in time. The head covering was tied to a particular culture and time. The culture has changed, but Christian wives must still honor the principle of subordination to their husbands in whatever way is appropriate in their culture that also comports with biblical morality. Yes. Okay, men. Head on the caps. Okay, in a church service, should men take their hands off in a church service? And especially when prayer is done. Sure. Probably. It's, it, I mean, it's... it's it, it, it's just I, respectful. It's just in our culture, it's respectful. When just I was like a kid, baseball game, you take your cap off during. The it's respectful. It's when I was a kid, everybody, if they when they entered the building, men just took off their yeah, hats, yeah. just right when they crossed the yeah. door threshold. But it's a cultural thing. Remember, this is a cultural thing. So it's not. It's not a moral absolute. No, it's not a moral absolute. Military is not wear head coverings inside. inside. They wear them outside. That's yeah. where back in the day it probably came from. Yeah. Like Aaron's supposed to, when he leaves the house, puts it on, he gets yeah. in his car, he takes it off, he's yeah. trying to walk inside. I don't know, I don't know. Sometimes when you're reporting, you're commanding officer, you do, uh, don't you, wear your hat. You do wear your hat. Like, sometimes you wear your hat inside. Most of the time, yeah. if you don't have a hat on, you don't salute. Yes, you don't salute. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And real men wear garters, right? <laughs> garters? What's Garter that? Belts? Garter belts. Yeah, I'm Scotch, and I never wore one of them kilts. <laughs> well, now, now we'll know what to get you for your Christmas. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Let's have a word of prayer, we'll close. Father, thank you for this time together today. Give us understanding of these truths and help us to be faithful to Scripture. We pray in Christ's name, Amen.